Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was first broadcast in 2010. Greetings and welcome to your friendly neighbourhood science program, Diffusion Science Radio. My name is Mark West and this week we are getting in touch with our old friends on this planet and outside of this solar system. Our own Ian Wolfe, who joins us here today in the studio. Welcome Ian, how are you? I'm pretty good. That's very good. I like you with that deep voice. Very nice. And also here in the studio is our other old friend, Victoria Bond. How are you going? Fantastic. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. ABC News reports a glucosamine is no better than a placebo. And people who take glucosamine and chondroitin for osteoarthritis are wasting their money. They're quoting a study from the British Medical Journal conducted by researchers from the University of Bern in Switzerland. Osteoarthritis of the hip or knee is a chronic condition that can't be cured. And the normal treatment is painkillers and anti-inflammatory drugs. But of course, these don't cure the condition and they can cause serious side effects, such as stomach ulcers and an increased risk of heart disease. Glucosamine and chondroitin are made from cartilage. Cartilage is what covers the ends of your bones in your joints. The theory is that when you swallow it, these compounds are absorbed from the gut and reach the joint where they help replace the cartilage damaged by osteoarthritis. Many GPs and rheumatologists recommend them to patients. Global sales in 2008 reached $2 billion. All up, the studies covered 3,803 patients with osteoarthritis of the knee or hip who were given treatment with one or both of these compounds over periods ranging from one week to three years. They found that people taking these compounds experienced no significant difference in pain or in the degree of damage to their joints compared to a placebo. The researchers note that at least there's no evidence that supplements are dangerous. Videotape recorded in Australia at the time of... Neil Armstrong's historic moonwalk was lost for decades. And when it was found, it was badly damaged. It's now been restored and will be watched at an Australian Geographic Awards event. It depicts the first few minutes of Armstrong's descent, which was recorded in Australia as NASA was still scrambling for a signal, showing a far clearer image than was actually screened worldwide. Telescopes in remote Australia played a key role in the Apollo 11 mission, including provision of the television signal. The Armstrong footage, which had only previously been seen by Apollo veterans and other members of the astronomy community, will form part of a highlights reel of restored, digitised moonwalk footage at the awards. NASA were using the Goldstone California station signal, which had its settings wrong. But in the signals being received by the Australian stations, you can actually see Neil Armstrong. And what people have seen before, you can barely see Armstrong at all. You can see something black, and that was his leg. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. 
Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Today, it is a commonly held scientific belief that life, including intelligent life, exists on other planets orbiting other stars. The scientific community has begun an attempt to find ways to substantiate this belief. The purpose of SETI, or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is to detect evidence of such intelligent life in our Milky Way galaxy. One of the earliest documented ideas about the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence dates back to over 2,000 years. In the 4th century BC, the Greek philosopher Metrodorus said, To consider the Earth as the only populated world in infinite space is as absurd as to assert that in an entire field of millet only one grain will grow. Despite such an early claim to the existence of life elsewhere, there were very few proponents of the existence of extraterrestrial life until the 15th and 16th century, when Copernicus and Galileo challenged the Ptolemaic view of Earth as being the center of the universe. In 1959, a new field of science called exobiology emerged, Exobiologists study, among other things, the origin and evolution of life. In studying the chemical origin of life, exobiologists theorized that all living things originated from inanimate matter. They also discovered a large number of carbon-based interstellar molecules and suggested that life forms, based on a molecular structure similar to ours, may have evolved on planets revolving around other stars. The new challenge was to find ways to detect these life forms. To kick off our discussions tonight, we're going to be talking about our old friends on the other side of the universe. As recently there's been some news that the most Earth-like planet has ever been dis- that has ever been discovered has been found 20 light years away. Now, the name of the planet is a bit of a mouthful. It's Gliese 581G. Now it actually isn't pronounced it doesn't it isn't spelt anything like that but it's Gliese 581G and it's located 20 light years away in the constellation of Libra. A team of planet hunters at the W.M. Keck Observatory in Hawaii has announced the discovery of this planet which is 3 times our mass all by orbiting the star and the star is called Gliese 581 at a distance that places it squarely in the middle of the star's habitable zone where liquid water could exist on the planet's surface. If confirmed, this would be the most Earth-like exoplanet yet discovered among the nearly 500 known exoplanets, extrasolar planets, and the first strong case for a potentially habitable one. To astronomers, a potentially habitable planet is one that could sustain life, not necessarily one that humans would consider a nice place to live. Habitability depends on many factors, but liquid water and an atmosphere are among the most important. The total number of known planets around Gliese 581 is six, the most yet discovered in an interplanetary system other than our own. Like our own solar system, the planets around Gliese 581 have nearly circular orbits. Two previously detected planets in the system lie at the edges of the habitable zone, one on the hot side, which is called Planet C, and one on the cold side, which is Planet D. And you may remember a little, a little over a year ago, Cosmos magazine decided to send text, me- text messages to Planet D because it was considered at the time that it was one of the more... Uh, it had higher potential of being uh, sustaining life. But while some astronomers still think that planet D may be habitable if it has a thick atmosphere with a strong greenhouse effect to warm it up, 
Others are pretty skeptical about that. But Gliese 581g has a mass just over three times that of the Earth and an orbital period of just under 37 days. Its mass indicates that, it prob that it's probably a rocky planet with a definite surface that has enough gravity to hold on to an atmosphere. And even more interesting about all this is that if the stellar location is that if the local stellar neighborhood is a representative sample of the galaxy as a whole, our Milky Way could be teeming with potentially habitable planets. I actually think it's kind of cool that this system has six planets. So our solar system doesn't really seem unique uh, in, in the universe. What do you guys think? Any old friends out there in Gliese ready to make contact with us, do you think? Well, I don't think we've got any answers to last year's messages. No, they haven't come through yet. Well, it's 20 light years away, so we might be waiting for, well... 20 years. <laughs> well, 40, really, because the messages have to come back. You're so right. Yeah. And so. that's if they feel like responding. I mean, what sorts of messages have we sent them? Uh, well, yeah, I'm not going to repeat the message that I sent on air. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, they might not choose to. I think they also need to have 3G mobile phones or Twitter accounts to be able to actually answer them. So, oh, I don't think they need 3G. They just need to be able to broadcast text. They need to be able to read ASCII code. Oh, really? Yes. I always imagine this as, as being sent like Morse code, but it's a little bit more sophisticated than that, isn't it? Not much. Not much. So, I might have a bit of a stupid question, but we've been sending out radio waves for much longer than 20 years. If there are, you know, live creatures out there on Gliese, they would have already received some of our outputs. Is that correct? Or would they have disintegrated or... It's very weak by the time it gets out there. Yeah. This, this what, what uh, Cosmos did last year was a very targeted thing they sent it straight there so i guess the signal is much stronger but oh. you're right we've been sending out um radio signals for well, how when was television invented well, in 50s it's it's about 50 years um which is also when the search for extra the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has been going for about as long but the signals get very faint our tv ones aren't aimed up at the stars most of the power is around here so they'd have to have very good telescopes indeed and there's there's actually a, a theory, and you might not might you might know more about this than I do. That um, the the sort of the use of radio waves as a communication method or medium uh, is likely to stop. We may find another way of doing it, a better, more efficient way at some point. So, the number of years that a that a planet will be sending out uh, messages like this, they, they may only be short. So there's every chance that that, that this this era of uh, Earth may be missed by anybody out there. Well, that's exactly right. We're using less radio in the frequencies that we're searching in than we used to, a lot less. And so are our telescopes strong enough to find radio waves from planets like Lisa? But TV signals, like the sort of thing we're sending out, right. not quite yet. But there's a lot of interesting things are, you know, on the on the improve. Or I don't know if you'd say exponentially, but certainly getting a lot better. And there's some interesting theories out there that eventually the search for extraterrestrial life will just look at planets, that the actual optical telescopes or perhaps infrared telescopes um, will be so good that we may even be able to just look at the surface of a planet and, and see if, if there are, uh, well, maybe like chlorophyll to start with. Uh, but beyond that, you know, seeing cities and such things. It's really interesting. Quite amazing. That would be quite amazing. Hopefully we're alive to see it. Do you have alien friends? You might be surprised how many people claim to have not only been visited by aliens, but have been talked to them, or perhaps even probed by them. Some people even think that Jesus might have been an alien. Darren Osborne and myself took to the pub to ask Sydney-siders what they thought of alien life. So I was just wondering, do you think that there is life out there? 
Absolutely, I've seen a UFO and a lot of people never believed me when I've told them. I only told a few people and they think I'm crazy, but yeah, I saw a UFO one night and freaked the hell out of me. <laughs> so where, where did you encounter this, this uh, UFO and can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, I was living not far from Blacktown. I was doing my HSC and um, lived around the corner from this big lookout. So I just went and had a cigarette break from studying and stuff. And all of a sudden, like, all the lights went out around the town and got really freaky, and I looked up in the sky, and there was this huge flying saucer with, you know, the lights going around the circumference, just like you see in the movies, you know, it was outrageous. And, of course, I was a little bit panicky and started running home down the hill around the corner, and the UFO was sort of flying through the air. And where I lived, a little flat above the garage, so I sat out on the steps for about 10 minutes, and this is where you're going to think I'm really nuts, is it spat out a baby ship. And um, I'd only wished that I'd had a camera or something on the night, and um, the ship sort of looked like it was flying towards the house. God knows how far away it was, you know. Anyway, I went to bed that night, the radio wasn't working properly, the TV was flickering, the lights were not working, and... So I sort of hid under the covers and actually wrote a note to my mother saying if I'm not here in the morning I've been abducted by aliens because <laughs> I really thought I was a goner. <laughs> anyway, I woke up, it was alright, nothing happened, there were no green men in my flat, but um, yeah, true story. And, and what do people say to you? You, you, you mentioned that people don't believe you, What's, what, how do they react when you tell them the story? Oh, they asked me, you know, if I was on drugs or anything, but I didn't even really know what a lot of stuff was back then. I was pretty innocent as far as that stuff goes, so totally sober. Black coffee, cigarettes, that was it, yeah, but people just think I was making it up or <laughs> having, a, <laughs> having a joke with them, but no, dead set true. But I'm not sure if anyone else saw it that night. I, they looked up the sky, they couldn't have missed it for the world. <laughs> so you're firmly in the yes category to is there alien life out there? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much. May the force be with you. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if there's anything out there, but you'd like to hope that we're not the smartest uh, creatures in the universe because um, we don't seem to be doing a, a very good job of managing our own planet, so hopefully someone else can do a better job. Do you believe, do you believe that uh, we've been visited? Do you believe in the idea of UFOs and, and aliens that have come to visit planet Earth? Uh, I think there's too many things uh, that have happened on Earth like uh, that people can't determine, you know, how ancient uh, civilizations could construct things the way they did, pyramids and uh, the Incans, so, yeah, I'd say so. You. you don't think the world's going to end in 2012 then, like the Incas did? Uh, I don't know, I saw that movie a couple of weeks ago and, um, yeah, it didn't look, it didn't look, um, it didn't look promising, so I hope <laughs> not, because I'll still be alive then. Well, it wasn't a documentary, I don't think, but... Oh, no, well, let's hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. All right. So do you believe that there's life beyond Earth? Uh, yeah, I probably think that there must be something else existing, but I don't know uh, what kind of form or how intelligent or how active they are in the whole solar system. Uh, what about the thought about UFOs that we've been visited? Do you, do you think that that's all made up or is there a chance that we could be being visited? I think a lot of people would like to believe that, so... I guess that's enough for them. I'm not really, yeah, positive. So you've never seen a UFO yourself? No, no, not, not yet, not yet, this time. Do you believe in uh, UFOs and alien life? Um, I've never really thought about it, but I guess, well, where did we come from, really? There has to be something else out there before us and I reckon after us as well, so I'm sure there would be something there. Uh, if you look into 
the sky and you see a star, it's generally a sun, um, which will have a galaxy around it and we're too small, you know, we can't even fathom how large the universe is and yeah, definitely life out there. Mm -hmm. What about the, uh, the idea of UFOs, that UFOs with aliens have come and visited us? Do you, do you support that idea? Uh, possibly. Um, you know, are we an experiment? You know, was Jesus an alien? I haven't thought of that idea before. <laughs> yeah. and, and do you think it's worth, you know, I mean, there, there are some uh, who are critical of searches for extraterrestrial life, whether it be, you know, using radio telescopes listening out for aliens or sending spacecraft out to Mars to search for life. I mean, is it a waste of time, or should we continue doing it? Well, it's out there. You've got to have a look. Was Jesus an alien? That's a very good question, and it's out there. Well, you might as well have a look. I love it. It's really good stuff. You can hear more of that discussion at beerdrinkingscientists.com if you're interested, as scientists do occasionally like to get friendly and chat science over a beer. Now, Ian, you have something on the rethinking of the search for extraterrestrial life. Should we talk about Project Argus first? Let's talk about Project Argus first, then. All right. Project Argus was set up by the SETI League, a group of amateurs who were concerned that since there wasn't any government funding for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, that they would set it up themselves. So if you're an enthusiastic amateur, you can get yourself an old satellite dish or and various bits of equipment depending on how much money you have, and set up in your backyard a radio dish connected over the internet to Project Argus and listen in for signals from aliens. You can do this all at home yourself. Do it all at home yourself. And they have a song. The giant SETI telescopes we typically apply At any time can only see a millionth of the sky So the chances they'll be missing any signal that is sent are roughly 99.9999%. But when Project Argus grows to full strength, we will show that the suns shall never set on SETI. The ancient Mythicard beasts that had a hundred eyes could see in all directions and completely scan the skies. If we used 5,000 dishes, had them pointed all around, we could intercept all signals which should chance to run aground. And when Project Argus grows to full strength, we will show that the suns shall never set on SETI. To build so many research-grade radio telescopes would deplete our planet's coffers and exceed our fondest hopes. But enlist 5,000 volunteers, persons who are skilled in technology no government could ever fund or build. And watch Project Argus grow to full strength as we show that the suns shall never set on SETI. We've privatized the effort that was lacking public funds to detect the beings living in the light of distant suns. Though the search may take a lifetime, it is very clearly shown that if we do not pursue it, we will always be alone. So let Project Argus grow to full strength 
As we show that the suns shall never set on SETI. That should have everyone ringing in to make a stop. <laughs> All right. I went to Melbourne and saw some amazing stuff. The Benford twins, James and Gregory Benford, along with their son, Dominic, had written a paper for the Journal of Astrobiology, Rethinking SETI. They say that we're looking at the search for extraterrestrial intelligence wrong. We're doing it wrong. He's looking at it from the perspective of what kind of beacons would aliens actually use to send a signal. If we were going to send a signal, what would we use? Now, James Benford is Director of Microwave Sciences. He's a physicist and expert in microwave transmitters. So he's looking at the cost-benefit ratios of how big an aerial you can build for the most power you can get out and what frequencies you would use. And it turns out we're looking at the wrong frequencies. So we're also looking the wrong way because we've been looking for a few minutes here and there and we should be looking at the whole sky continuously. We should probably be also concentrating on the galactic centre where there's more stars and they're older. So there's more likely to be life and more likely to be civilization. So he thinks the most economical way to signal your presence to the universe is to have a powerful main beam that pretty much just pulses enough to obviously be not natural and to get people's attention. Perhaps scanning like a lighthouse through the galaxy. Sort of look this way. And once you're looking the right way, a lower power signal will carry actual data for how to communicate. So to date, SETI has found no signals out to a distance of hundreds of light years. But over the last 50 years, people have only spent a couple of months of telescope time listening to signals. So his argument is that we've been looking for signals since the 1950s that made it cheaper for us, the receiver, and didn't worry about the cost to the aliens. We assume their motivation is communication and that they'd be high-powered enough that we could hear them and be running all the time. They'd broadcast around 1 to 2 gigahertz because it's the most quiet part of the sky in microwaves and that's so it's easier for us to detect. It's all, it's all about us. And of course in the 50s when we started... That was what we could make, 1 to 2 gigahertz microwaves, no higher. Now, if you make it cheaper for the sender, for the aliens, things are different. And as most messages we've received from the past, and SETI signals will be messages from the past, it's all been, I was a great king, remember me, or Kilroy was here. So the aliens' motivations might be for pride, to announce their existence, or even accidental leakage from internal communications. So there might be two beacons talking to each other. So as a result... They'd broadcast in a sequence of bursts or pulses, which so you hear a little bit and then it would stop because it's moved on. So they'd broadcast in high microwave signals around 5 to 10 gigahertz because that's where it tops out as being the most bang for your buck. So his strategy is to look at temporary signals we've seen in the past and it's quite possible that we've already seen one of these signals. Several times over the past 50 years, searchers have picked up radio signals that flashed once or twice and then disappeared. The best known of these is called the WOW signal, because that's what an astronomer who picked it up wrote on the printout, from a radio telescope at the Ohio State University in the 70s. The researchers went back to the star in question immediately, but heard nothing. It may well be that we detected extraterrestrials more than 30 years ago, but because we weren't taking into account what ET would do, we failed to confirm it. He thinks our best bet is the Square Kilometre Array, a giant telescope to be made from thousands of radio dish telescopes, all connected to a giant computer that synthesises the image if it, as if it came from one giant telescope around the Earth. 
If a small number of extra dishes were added that were devoted to SETI, then we could just stare at the sky to look for the sort of beacons that 21st century science says are the most likely kinds we might be seeing. So what do you guys think? Are we looking just the wrong way? It's a very good question. I've always been intrigued by that wow signal. It's a, it's a very old signal, isn't it? It was in the 70s, was it? In the 70s. In the 70s, and we've never had an explanation for it. It's very interesting. Well, it's one of those things, and we have sort of, after we stop seeing anything, we stop looking. But, mm. I mean, if we were to... Uh, they looked again, and there was no signal. If we, if we were to look back to the star now, and there's still no signal, what more can we do? Ah, well, he's saying, what if, for example, it's actually a signal that comes from the other side... Then if it comes from, we should look in the other direction from the galactic plane from where we heard it, either towards the centre or away from the centre and see if it's talking to someone, for example. Today, Diffusion has been hosted by me, Mark West, produced by Old Spice Ian Wolfe, and we've been kept in line by Victoria Bond. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and... 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? 
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.